Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. A rocket scientist, a cowboy, a porn star, and a mom walk into a dungeon. And those are just the players. Stay tuned after this episode for a trailer for I Seduce the Dragon, which is a bi-weekly actual play D&D podcast starring five talented women who started playing as a way to connect with each other and evolved into a series of hilarious side quests and attempted heroics. Hey everybody, Rev here. As part of our celebration of our one-year anniversary, we're putting out the first episode of Investigate the History, hosted by Carolyn Conover, onto our normal RSS feed. So please enjoy the episode, and if deep dives into magic and lore and history and monsters is your thing, you can head on over to patreon.com slash thecritshow and join our Patreon, where each month you'll get an episode of Investigate the History, hosted by Carolyn Conover. Have a great weekend, and enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Investigate the History. This is a companion podcast to The Crit Show. Uh, I am joined here with one of my dearest and oldest friends. Oldest. Well, yeah, oldest in in the sense of, I mean, okay, both. (laughs) How old you are in the longest. So true. Yeah. We're like, what, 30 seconds apart in age. And she is, well, actually, why don't you introduce yourself instead okay. of me trying to just list off your huge list of uh, pedigree. L- li- list all the things off first and say the name last so it's really confusing. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, I'm Carolyn Conover. I am a professor of theater at Blackburn College, which is a little college in Illinois. And I also work as a dramaturg, which is essentially a research tool for a theater. Um, I got my bachelor's in theater performance and a master's in English drama and a master of fine arts in theater. So I've been researching searching a lot of theater for a very long time. Theater history and literature are my two areas of focus, I guess, that I enjoy the most. Yeah. And so Carolyn is a nerd, but she is. That's so true. I didn't say that, but it's true. Yeah. But she's a different kind of nerd. She very much loves the the history and the background of things. I mean, I think you would have to, to go into dramaturgy. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely true. I don't, uh, I don't play RPGs. I've, I've played one ever in my whole life. It was kind of a disaster. (laughs) Um, I'm not good at improv that kind of you know narrative on the fly like like you all do in this in the game but i know you all and i've known you all so long it's been really nice to listen to um and so when she was listening to the show she would message me randomly with some questions like oh so what is the deal with the soul bat or you know why is this kind of vampire act this way as opposed to this other way and as we were kind of having these conversations back and forth at one point, she's like, you know, I think this would be a really interesting kind of companion to the show of like, oh, let's do a deep dive on the history and like talk about why you picked what you picked or where the, the myths or the creatures come from. And that's kind of right in Carolyn's wheelhouse. So what we're going to do here is once a month we are going to get together and we're going to talk about one of the story arcs. She's going to ask me some questions. She's going to share with you some history. Um, You'll kind of get the feel for it as you go. But this is, if you are someone who loves the background story, if you like to know where myths or curses or urban legends come from, you're going to have a good time with this. And it's going to be specifically centered around the crit show uh, and each story arc. So this first episode, we're going to talk about uh, an evening at the Halifax. So normally it might be Carolyn doing the introduction, but I figured that since there was a huge long rigmarole of what this was and how it came to be uh, that I would take that bullet and explain that. I appreciate that. that. Yeah. So should I just dive in? Yeah, I think so. Well, I guess before we talk about specifically about the Halifax, you were giving me a little tutorial on 
how RPGs work and how Monster of the Week specifically is different than than what's traditional. I guess the the traditional kind of uh, gold standard is D and D. I'm assuming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for somebody like me who's never played one, what's the uniqueness of Monster of the Week? Yeah. So D and D is a lot of really dense rules. Um, there is a rule for everything. Um, you know, D and D and Pathfinder are kind of the standard for RPG when it, when it comes to a D20 system. And a D20 system means that you roll a 20 sided die, and then if you have a skill or a bonus, something say that you're trying to swim and your character's a strong swimmer, so you might have like a skill sheet that tells you, oh, plus five to swimming. So I'm going to roll this D20 and I add five to whatever I get. And then I take that number and the game master will compare it to a difficulty number. He's like, oh, you know, this is a really choppy river. It's really, uh, really hard to swim across. So it's going to be a DC 15. Okay, well, I got a 19. Okay, you succeed. Or, oh, okay, I got an 11. All right, you fail. You start swimming across and you're having a hard time and you're starting to sink under. And so there are a lot of rules. There's a lot of die rolling. There's a lot of math in D&D and Pathfinder. And Powered by the Apocalypse games are more narrative driven. So the rules, they're very few. And what you need to play the game is really 2d6. And the Game Master doesn't actually even roll anything. All of his moves are in reaction to what the players have done. And so if you are trying to attack a monster, you roll 2d6, you add... Uh, if you have a bonus to your kick some ass, you add that. And then it is just always set that, you know, if you get a 10 or over, it is complete success. A 7 to 9 is a mixed success, and a 6 and under is a fail. And so instead of it saying, okay, they fail, here's what happens. We like with swim, oh, if they fail, they start to sink. Well, okay, so kick some ass, they fail. It just says things go to hell. So that allows me to go, okay, so what's the story right now? What's the most interesting or creative thing that could happen when things go to hell here? It may not be that they take a bunch of damage. It may be that they're trying to rescue somebody, they try to kick some ass, and it doesn't work. And so what would be the most interesting story-wise, narratively, is, oh, things go to hell, so it picks up the person they're trying to protect and runs away. Or it smashes through a wall and exposes a bunch of other people who were hiding. So there's flexibility within that narrative, no matter whether they fail or it's a medium or it's a success. Um, If it's a success, they do exactly what they set out to do. So that's kind of their part of it. So I'm like, okay, so now you tell me, how does this go? You wanted to to run over and save this person. You got a full success. So describe it to me. And so it it makes for a much more collaborative storytelling experience. Um, You know, both games, no matter what, are telling a story. You know, ultimately the game master, the players are trying to tell a story, but this one is a lot looser. It is for people that maybe have some more comfort with making things up on the fly. You know, D&D and Pathfinder, they have adventure paths that you can play through. And so it's like, oh, this happens and this happens and this happens. It's what people call kind of on the rails, which means that there's not a whole lot of veering away from the main story. But for this, okay, here's what I think is going to happen. Oh, they went a completely different direction. Right, right. And they succeeded on something I thought would be very difficult, or they found something I thought they'd never find, or they failed on something I thought would be really easy. Or they completely missed something that was laid. Correct. So now they have to navigate around that. Yeah. And so it makes the story completely different in a way that if I were to try to force the story to be what I thought it was originally, it would be disingenuine and it just wouldn't make sense. Like, because you'd be like, well, where did that come from? Why did that happen? It doesn't make any sense. You know, everything in this story, as you go back through story arcs, connects this villain is here because of something they did here this bad guy knows this piece of information about them because they failed this one role and you know the result is that they expose information about themselves and so it is an ever-growing story based off of the die results so some of the things that i've noticed as i've been listening to all the different elements of the story is that there's a repetition in things like the questions that they ask so those are all predetermined correct so they to play this game they have I think three sheets of paper, two of them are their character sheets and one of them is their move sheet. And so for investigative mystery, it's got six or seven set questions for kick some ass. It's got six or seven set effects. Um, That stuff doesn't change. And that's again, those are kind of the set few rules that kind of help guide the world. So when they level up and they get to pick new attributes to their characters, how much of that is predetermined for them? Is that all chosen from a list? So at the bottom of the sheet, they have a bar that says, okay, when you level up, you can take, and it just gives you a list of options. And as you take one, you cross it off so you don't have the option for it again. So it might be, oh, take another move from your playbook. Like all the playbooks have moves that they aren't using because they haven't selected them. But one class might have that option three times, whereas another class might have that option five times. Um, I think the mundane has the option to take a point of luck back like three times, but every other class only has it once. And so they are different even between 
one another, um, but it is a predetermined set. And then there's also an advanced set that once they level up five times, they can take more advanced things. So the luck was something I was specifically curious about. So when they roll just a horrendous fail, I hear them say, I'm going to spend a point of luck. Mm -hmm. So they have different amounts of luck based on how, who they are, or what kind of character they are, or... Um, the amount of luck that they start with is the same. Everybody's got seven points of luck, and then they spend it. And as you spend that, your character becomes less lucky. And once they get to no luck, they're doomed. Essentially, the world is against them. Things are supposed to get harder on them. The more luck they spend, the less luck they have. I mean, so then as a level up option, they can buy back a point of luck. So they might be at four and they can get back up to five when they level up. Okay, they can buy it back. And then does that seven points, does that reset with every story arc or? No, that is for the char the life of the character. Wow. Yeah. So even as we move into season two of the crit show, they'll remain with their four points or whatever of luck. Um, Probably not because at least the way it stands in my head right now. And again, you know, this is all subject to change based off how the story goes. But I think that season two will be a different game. Oh, okay. So it'll still be a Powered by the Apocalypse game, but I don't think it'll be Monster of the Week. Okay, because that could be... Our heroes often roll terribly. Yes. So that could um, could really be damaging. Yeah, and so it is, it's a big deal to spend a point of luck because you only yeah. have so many and the world gets rougher the fewer you have. Um, and so early on, they weren't sure when to use them and they didn't very often. And now I think they can kind of get a sense of like, man, this is real important. I should use one. And I know the rolling of the die is so random anyway. Although I will say in the Monument Circle story arc, they rolled some badass yeah. stuff over. I was really impressed. That's the best they've rolled, I think. Well, it's interesting, too, because when you think about it, a six and under is a fail on two six sided dice. Yeah. You know, they can get a two to a 12 on those dice. So, um, you know, they really only have a small percentage of complete success. Now, once you start factoring that they have bonuses or minuses to what they're doing, it's right. different. But but when essentially half of their options are fails. Yeah. Yeah. That changes the strategy. Of it, it does. Okay. So should we jump into Halifax so. yeah. storyline? Uh, well, so right off the bat, my nerd brain noticed two things. Um, when Margaret is setting up the location and kind of setting out the exposition for how the story is going to go, I noticed um, that it's on Drury Lane next to the muffin shop. Yeah. So uh, please tell me that that was just off the cuff and not a specific reference that's that's necessary for people to understand no, the connection it, to that nursery rhyme. It is just completely off the cuff. They asked me the roads. Um, you know, one of their favorite things is to ask for unnecessary details. And so I will just pluck in that for some reason that scene from Shrek was in my head. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I just threw those both out there. Yeah. So th that is completely arbitrary. Um, there is not a secret gingerbread man running around committing <laughs> murders by the Halifax. Yet, yeah. Was like on another hallway they didn't turn down. I mean, I down. guess I shouldn't say that. He could be out there. <laughs> it will. Um, no. So I appreciated all of the theater references to this. I That was awesome. So. So I don't know if you remember from your undergrad theater history class, uh, the significance of the Drury Lane Theater. The Drury Lane Theater is part of Covent Garden in London West, London's West End. Um, is one of the main theaters that was licensed in the 1660s during the English Restoration. So, you know, the Puritans shut down all the theaters. And then uh, in the English Restoration, they're reopened again, but with really specific rules. So there are a handful of theaters that are granted patents to produce what is, and I'm using quote fingers here, legitimate theater. Mm. Um, and so this patent that was connected to the Drury Lane Theater was originally granted to Thomas Kilgrew, and he ran the King's Company. And that theater burned down several times in its history. And so I appreciated that nod with the Halifax Theater burning down at the end of this episode. And yeah. I don't know if if you realize the kind of little nuggets of theater that you're laying, or theater history that you're laying in the path here. I never expected for the Halifax Theater to burn down. Oh, wow. So that's you just know, something that happened because of decisions they made. Yeah, that is a happy accident. TJ was trying to recharge his power armor, and he hooked it up to the light grid, and he failed his weird science role. Right. And things go to hell. And I thought, well, he's he's plugged into the electrics, this is an old theater. This is what makes sense. Because in that story, they lost so much. They never really got to find clues that were hidden there. Because pretty early on, they set off the alarm on accident and then right. burned the theater down. So yeah, that is that 
reference is a happy accident wow. you know, based off of TJ's die roll. See, that in a way that disappoints me because I was so impressed. Yeah. Well, again, that's kind of that idea that if I wanted the theater to burn down, if I had decided it was going to burn down, it would be against the spirit of the game. Absolutely. You know, that can only happen as a result of them really failing something. So um, another early reference that co- that comes about that I noticed is um, Jake's hammer, the very kind of Molnir reference to Thor's hammer. He mentions Odin several times and Thor's hammer. Is that kind of a switch on the mythology or? He mentions Odin because in the comics, the idea is Thor uses it, but it's granted by Odin. Okay. You know, the Odin, it used to be his, he passed it on to his son. Um, So yeah, I mean, it is Thor's hammer, but I think he was thinking of himself as Thor. Got it. And then, because he's got a god that he reports to, so it would be Odin. I don't remember if Jake mentions this. Is is his hammer like Thor's hammer have the um, unnaturally short handle? So it can only be wielded with one hand? Tell me about that. Tell, yes, tell me about there's a reason he doesn't. So um, there's a collection of weapons in North mythology that are called thunder weapons that are connected to lightning like Thor's hammer. So it's not just the hammer, but um, Thor's hammer has an unnaturally short handle because there was an error in its manufacturing so what happens essentially is that loki so there are two dwarves that make the hammer and loki makes a bet to them he actually bets his head to these two dwarves that they cannot make a weapon as beautifully as the competing dwarf weapon makers i don't know the norse terminology for a dwarf weapon maker but loki uh bets them that they cannot make a hammer as beautiful as these other two brothers and then as they're making the hammer and one of them is bellowing the flames loki turns himself into a fly and starts distracting the dwarf who's bellowing and he distracts him long enough from the bellows to wipe the fly away that he can't complete the length of the hammer handle which leaves thor's hammer handle unnaturally short Um, meaning that it can't be wielded with two hands. So in Jake's using of this hammer, I was curious if he ever specifically clarified that it can only be used with one hand because that was all set up by Loki being a trickster and and they come to get his head because they claim the hammer's beautiful and he says, well, you can have my head, but you can't cut my neck. That wasn't part of the deal, so they Uh, can't take his head. Classic Loki move. Classic Loki pulling from uh, the judge in Merchant of Venice. Yeah, very much so, yes. (laughs) Okay, so I admit I find no research on soul bats. Tell me about soul bats. Uh, that's because I made it up. Well, that would be why I couldn't find anything yeah, about soul um, bats. So, I find a light on the wood sprite tucked into the soul bat. Yes. But not on the soul bat. Uh, so the soul bat was just, I wanted something that, and actually I realized this after the fact when someone else mentioned it to me, but it's actually very similar to um, kind of the generic bad guys in a video game called Kingdom Hearts called The Darkness. But I wanted something that was dark and shadowy that could take over somebody. And so I just started going through the list of like, okay, so what's a what's a power um, that I want this creature to have? So you wanted a creature that was symbiotic. So something yeah. that lived off of something else. Uh-huh. Right. And I wanted it to be involved with a curse. There are guides in the book for how to make your own monster. And so I just kind of followed that. And I was like, okay, so I want something that's symbiotic and I want it to feed off of something. Well, what could I feed off of in a theater? Oh, okay, so a curse. I want it to, you know, that that energy. People get real upset about the Macbeth curse. They get real, real testy about it. And I was like, you know, that's something I think that something could, kind of from Ghostbusters 2 even, that, oh, it can feed off of this negative energy. And I think even the name, they kind of caught me off guard because they rolled, you know, we were still getting used to this game. And I forgot just how powerful the moves are, the moves... You know, if they ask the right question early on, it can really solve a lot of problems. And I think the first question they asked was, well, what is it? And I went, oh, I have to have a name for this thing. I hadn't it hadn't even thought about it. I couldn't tell you why I said that. But that's just I was like, oh, it's a soul bat. It is uh, it is a creature that kind of hangs upside down on your soul Mm -hmm. and just feeds off of the things there. So symbiotic relationships can be negative or positive, right? We can have a bees and pollinating flowers kind of relationship yeah. or we can have a parasitic relationship. Yeah, so this is definitely a parasitic, you know, it also obviously has overtones of like venom from yeah. Spider-Man. Yeah, and you mention him when they're first trying to kind of navigate the situation. You yeah. mention venom, which is, again, I don't understand superhero universes. So yeah. venom is a villain. The symbiote venom 
is kind of evil. It wants to, it's not evil, but it wants to feed off of things. It's hungry um, and it has a very strict sense of like right and wrong. It's like, oh, you commit evil, then you die. And so Spider-Man struggled with it and it went to someone else and the other guy kind of used it for evil, but then it went to someone who kind of could control it and use it for good, but it still wanted to do bad things. He was just able to kind of wrangle it. Well, I think the fact that the soul bat absorbs the negativity that comes from superstitions just connects it beautifully to Macbeth. I'm going to nerd out hardcore for a minute. I'm ready. um, About the the Scottish play, if you will. Now, I am not one who generally subscribes to the superstition of saying Macbeth or not saying Macbeth in a theater. Do you? No. Ever since I met Christopher Birdchild, who, who directed is, our production, yeah. yeah, and he's also the uh, I'm the associate artistic director at Crossroads Repertory Theater, and he's the artistic director now. And uh, my first year as the associate artistic director was when we did Macbeth, and he just didn't subscribe to it at all. Yeah. And so I had never really cared much either way, but I was like, okay, if he doesn't care, I don't care. But we did have a director there who cared a lot. Oh, people are impassioned yeah. about this superstition; so, it is ingrained in them. Yeah, yes. So, So say what the superstition is, and then I will tell you my little side story. Sure. So I'm going to try to to use your terminology to stay on the rails here. Okay. See how I... Yeah, that's good. I'm learning so fast. Um, So obviously there's this curse of what's traditionally in theater called the Scottish play, because that is the term you use in lieu of saying the name of the title, which is supposedly supposed to bring you bad luck to clarify. It is the title of the play that brings bad luck, not saying the name of the character. So you can stand on stage and say, I'm playing Macbeth, but you cannot say in Macbeth. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So tradition holds that Macbeth has been cursed since its first performance. Um, And even in some of its production, its early kind of inception, there are these intense supernatural elements with the witches, the three witches controlling the weather. There are there's Hecate or Hecate, depending on who you ask, um, who does this summoning of the apparitions and the magical spells. A lot of this is connected prior to the play that was written um, that Shakespeare wrote the play in order to gain favor with England's then king, James I, who was not only descended from the same Stuart line as Banquo, which is the heroes in Shakespeare's mm. play, but who was also a firm believer in witches and the dangers of the occult and the presence of the devil. James I published his own study of witchcraft and demonology in 1597, so a few years before Macbeth was written. So we have that influence and is no doubt connected to the kind of eeriness of the work itself. So rumor has it that some local practitioners of black magic were not happy with how they were portrayed on stage and were, you know, at the height of of witch scares in the 1600s, early 1600s, and they were not pleased with the public revelation of some of their rituals and incantations. So some people think that Shakespeare includes verbatim in Act 4 when they actually do Hecate's summoning those are actual lines from an incantation that were used in ceremonies so it's like the the modern day version of when magicians put on a mask and show you how the tricks were done and then like other magicians try to have them assassinated and so they were not pleased at all and so legend holds that they decided to curse the play and any future production of it so the most popular and long-held superstition is that uttering the word macbeth outside of the play itself where it's in the text is bad luck and puts bad luck on the production and the actors acting it. There are ways to remedy this. Um, You can spin around and say a few lines from Hamlet and cancel out the bad juju. Um, There's also something that's been written. So thrice around the circle bound evil sink into the ground is what you're supposed to say to cancel out the negativity. Do you know why Hamlet? I don't know why specifically Hamlet. It, did but the witches Hamlet, just, they brings, specific, like, you know what? We like this we Hamlet guy. We just hate Hamlet. We just, the witches hate Hamlet. So in oh. order, it would be that the witches are offended by Hamlet, right? Oh, so and you it have scares to, them away. You have to scare them away. Oh, yeah. I see. Because if you, if you did more of what they liked, it would, they'd stick around. Oh, I thought it was like an appeasement. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Like, What's your favorite? Here's this, here's this play that you like better. It's like, well, I'm really much of a... Give me a little bit from Midsummer, yeah, baby. I'm really more of a much-ado-about-nothing witch, but... <laughs> I like Prospero. Bring on some Prospero. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of magic I can get behind. So this the plague of this 
curses actors, directors, designers, audience members. There are all these different elements. And, you know, once you have a superstition, mm. then that superstition starts to pop up everywhere. It's like UFOs, right? Yeah. So there are lots of different elements. So in the original production, it's rumored that Shakespeare had to fill the role of Lady Macbeth at the last minute when the boy playing the queen suddenly became ill and died. I don't have a lot of scholarship to confirm that. It is one rumor. Um, there have been reports of prop weapons being replaced by real ones that result in death or injury. One actor actually died in a 1672 production in Amsterdam because a fake weapon was switched with a real weapon. Uh-oh. I don't even um, think I realized that at that time period they had fake weapons. It was just like, here's a real weapon. Be careful. Well, they would have been wooden. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. The next one I found in 1934, an actor playing Macbeth suddenly went mute during a soliloquy for no explainable or, you know, inexplicable reasons. I think it's called forgetting your line. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Nerves. I've just been struck mute. I forgot. I forgot this monologue was in the show. And so I didn't memorize it. Skip to the end. A falling prop nearly killed Laurence Olivier when he was playing Macbeth in 1937. Uh, Same production in the 1937 production. um, Director and actress playing... The director and the actress playing Lady Macduff were in a serious car accident on their way to the theater. And the prop assistant died of a heart attack backstage during a dress rehearsal. That's all of that attached to that 1937 Laurence Olivier production. So there's a host of bad luck. It might have just been their production was cursed. Now, I have to say, though, and this was actually Chris's thing, was that if a play is old enough, if you do enough research, you could make a case. That Absolutely. I, I think that just sitting here having this conversation, you know, talking about the things wrong with Macbeth, like the curses, there's probably five times as many things that happened in Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark <laughs> with all of the people that were injured and broken legs and... You know, yeah, I don't know that you could compare the two in terms of quality of text. Though. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, Macbeth might have a leg up, but I mean, in sense of uh, quality of curse. Oh yeah, people were falling from the ceiling. Huh? Yes, yeah, yeah. Or like mid-show, like doing a swing and breaking a leg. I wonder too if these are better documented as we get into the 20th century because of the actors playing the lead role. Oh, you know, yeah. like one of them, a 1953 production starring Charlton Heston. We know that he was very seriously burned on his lower body when his costume caught fire because it was, according to the accident report, quote, accidentally soaked in kerosene. Maybe it was like an angry actor who was like, I'm cast as Lennox. I want to play Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> in Saint in a St. Paul production, the actor playing Macbeth dropped dead during the third act of the production. And when Alec Baldwin played the lead role in 1998 off-Broadway, he nearly amputated the hand of the actor that he was sword fighting with. Wow. Yeah. So there are kind of two different camps when it comes to the curse. Is the production cursed or is the text cursed? So when... The imagery of the text itself in the locker that the guys find in the Halifax with the black substance kind of pouring out of it's like, oh, well, that's got to be the source of Mm -hmm. the evil. Um, That kind of coincides more with the text itself being cursed, which is the kind of different um, ideas about where the curse come from. So there's some speculation that Shakespeare didn't write there's this brief scene in the middle of Act 3 when the three witches evoke the spirit of Hecate, who's a Greek goddess of the underworld, and that this author, whoever this mysterious author was, may have been of supernatural origin, like maybe Shakespeare didn't actually write that piece himself. In Act 3, Scene 1, there's an inconsistency, which I know we noticed when we did the production, and Chris had a way of addressing it, but in Act 3, Scene 1, Macbeth addresses two murderers, but then when these characters reappear to attack Banquo and Fleance in 3-3, there's a third murderer that has joined them with no explanation of where this murderer popped up. Yeah. So in our production, Chris made Macbeth that third murderer. Yeah, so that he would essentially actually have a hand in committing the right. murder. Right. Some people believe that the Macbeth curse was that that third role was left open for Satan. And so that Satan, the idea that the actual devil appears on stage and takes the part of that third murderer is a role that's reserved for Satan. So that was his bargain. He's like, okay, I will write act three, scene one for you, but you got to write me a role in three, three. Yeah. And he's like, 
do you have to have lines? He's like, no, I guess not. I'll just show up. They I can just, just talk just, about I mean, me. Yeah. You could commit help commit a murder. Oh yeah, I'm totally Sweet. down for that. Yeah. Kid murder? Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh wait, the kid escapes. Damn it. And there are some theaters that are just reluctant to even put the production on period because they think it will bring about some kind of financial ruin for them. So, so much history attached to this play. I will stop talking about it. Has anybody ever done a production where they did not cast the third murderer, but then the third murderer appeared on stage? I'm sure I would have found that if I had. Yeah, Um, I like the idea of keeping it open for the devil, though. Yeah, just in case. Little devil on your shoulder, murderer behind your back. Doesn't matter. Okay, so you want to know my my secret? Yes. So since 2008, which is, you know, 10 years ago, I've done a lot of shows since then. Um, when I lived in Cincinnati, I, I was doing seven, eight shows a year. Ever since I realized that I don't believe it to be true, but just kind of for a litmus test for myself, since that production of Macbeth, every show I've ever been in, right before I walk on stage, I say Macbeth out loud to myself. So I've done it literally thousands of times. Wow. Yeah. Just to, just to see, ever since Chris was like, oh, yeah, if you look long enough, you can see that a production is cursed. And I mean, maybe that explains my career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just for myself, I, I, I out loud say Macbeth. Um, it's like call the bluff of yeah, the superstition. Within like yeah. two minutes of going out on stage. Now, the problem is, is that maybe I've been saying the name of the character and not the play. Maybe. And so I've just been, I've just been like Neo Matrix missing the, that bullet <laughs> on a technicality. Maybe. We'll never know. So there are a few things that are unique to the Halifax story. And then there are some tropes that are going to reappear over and over. One of those is the werewolf serum. So in episode four, I think mm-hmm. they go back to IPT and they learn about werewolf serum. That is this uber fast, but also addictive way for them to heal themselves yeah so obviously there's so much history and mythology of uh lycanthropy lycanthropy yeah i really think it depends on who you ask yeah so just the general background of this and i won't go into all of it but um it's one of the most widespread european mythologies but it also exists as early as there's there's some of it that comes out of greek uh research that we have during the reign of Nero. We have some speculate that there are even biblical references to this, specifically in Daniel chapter four, there's this mention of King Nebuchadnezzar, who's being cursed with the belief that he was able to change into a wild animal. Um, No specific werewolf biblical in the text, but, um, but there's that kind of homage to it. So in the middle ages, the belief in werewolves grew in correlation with the belief in witches fear of the supernatural in general. And so these fears and paranoia travel over to the early period in the Americas. And then after the witch trials, werewolves actually become a more central focus in folklore. And and we see them in Gothic literature. We see them in romantic storytelling and uh, obviously are solidified in pop culture. So I'm curious, this idea of the werewolf serum that heals the guys, is that just because IPT is going to, of course, research werewolves as one of the litany of creatures that they research? Or is there some specific tie to werewolves? IPT, you know, it was kind of established that they are the monster hunting organization for essentially Indiana. And it made sense to me that, oh, this is something that's pretty common. They would have dealt with this. And one of the effects that he had picked for IPT was like weird gadgets or something. So I thought, well, this makes sense. Like if they're taking monsters' powers and technology and trying to combine them, what are some things that they could make? And so that was just the first thing that came to my mind that made sense was like, oh, well, yeah, if you've got a creature that is super fast healing, you could probably find a way to take that and make it beneficial for the Mm -hmm. people working for you. Also, early on, we didn't understand exactly how the healing worked. It was kind of tricky to navigate. We understand it better now, but it was also a way for me, just as the game master, to give them a way to get kind of back up to snuff without having to rest for two or three days. And so that's why I added the addictive quality, because I didn't want them just doing it all the time. Um, And there's a story arc later, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but there's a point where it had been used enough that someone was about to turn into a werewolf, they would have actually changed their playbook from whatever it was they were to the monstrous, and they would have been part werewolf. I also appreciate you're using a sustainable resource. I mean, in this world with monsters, you're always going to have some serum there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, it was not um, specific to IPT. It just kind of made sense that, okay, here are 10 monsters that in my world, I think are 
pretty run-of-the-mill. So they would have had these, they could have studied these, and here is some equipment they could have made to help their hunters out that use the tools of the supernatural stuff that they're fighting. Mm -hmm. And then the vampire glamour, I'm assuming, then is also another kind of repeat that they can go back to when they need that again. I mean, it was really important for transforming TJ's character. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not something that they've really ever needed to use again. Um, They've kind of given up the idea of trying to have a normal life in addition to this work life, which is makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, those are really kind of the established things so far that I've shown. They haven't really gone back for other gear from IPT um, that comes from monsters. And part of that was that I told them early on, you'll have to find the monsters. Right. Um, you know, uh, later on in the story, they get a web sack from a spider monster. And so TJ has that. He's never taken it to IPT yet to get it something done with it, but he could because, oh, here's a thing that a creature had. Um, and so I didn't want to create too many items because I wanted them to have to go out and find stuff mm-hmm. if they wanted special specialty things made. So another element in the narrative that I think opens you up to so many different possibilities of where the story can go are these ley lines. Mm-hmm. And so Rev, you know, explains how the ley lines work for the story in that they're these energies from other worlds and dimensions that kind of collect and then connect and cross. Um, and where they cross, there are these enhanced area yeah, kind of, of magic. Leaks of yeah. energy, yeah. Yeah, that where things come through. Um, and Rev kind of explains them as more of a natural resource. Um, so I'm wondering if you looked at the idea of where ley lines came from and how they're connected. Yeah, so, you know, different book series use ley lines different ways. Um, you know, obviously the ley lines are an actual kind of grid Mm -hmm. um, that people believe, whether supernatural or black magic or whatever. Um, And so for our purpose, I started to make them more of a natural resource that, okay, so you've got this this grid around the world where these energies kind of travel. And so what if there was a crack there? What if there was a vein that came off of it and surfaced? You know, I really was thinking about volcanoes. You know, when a volcano gets really powerful and it's starting to force its way up, sometimes little areas can crack off of it. Mm -hmm. So you might get a spurt of lava off on its west end, you know, before it erupts because it just has happened to break through there. And so I wanted to have something that if they needed to try to use magic, they had a way to access it because none of my players actually have the ability to use magic. Um, We use, it's a game mechanic called Additional Weird, And it's a supplement that they put out after the game was originally out. But originally, everybody in the game had the ability to use magic. And use magic is a great power. It's super powerful. But it doesn't make sense for everybody. So you don't think Jake's transportation or teleporting is magic? Uh, Well, no. Use magic is an actual move. Oh. So it's like investigate a mystery, kick some ass. Got it. Okay. One of the moves is use magic. And so it has specific, specific effects see another time and place, heal a point of damage, bar a creature from a room, banish something from this plane. Um, There's a couple other ones. But it just didn't make sense for them to have those. Like, why would Tass know how to use magic? Right, right. And so he took Trust Your Gut, which makes way more sense. TJ took Weird Science. Um, Jake took No Limits so that he could be super strong or super fast. And so I've played a number of games now, and I always implement that more weird options. And very few people ever keep, very few people ever keep use magic because it just doesn't make sense for their character. Um, and so I wanted them to have a way to access magic because magic's a really important part of the game. But I didn't want to necessarily penalize them for leaning into their character build. Mm-hmm. I think the volcano analogy is a good one. You know that they're this; they create a path, and somewhere along the path, something pops up within that path yeah. that becomes a touch point. So just a little bit of background. So the term ley lines was first coined in 1921 by this amateur archaeologist, Alfred Watkins in England, um, where he, standing on the hillside, noticed the kind of symmetry, I guess, or the, the linear patterns of a combination of things. So natural landmarks, which goes with the natural resources, as Rev describes them in the story, but also then religious sites of significance and then man-made structures. So there's a combination and what pops up along the line. And it's kind of this pseudoscientific significance, I guess. There's lots of uh, debate on this. But that essentially when England was more densely forested, that these 
landscape points kind of popped up and then people use them for navigation or, or ceremonial significance. You know, especially in early England, you have a combination of Christian significance and pagan significance. So the, those were used to kind of help navigate those points. So, But Watkins never assigned any supernatural meaning to these lines at all. Um, they were more so used for navigation, as I said. So the New Age idea of them, that they have a spiritual or, or physic or mystic power, is uh, definitely more tied to a more contemporary interpretation of them. I think the first time that I really had much exposure to that idea is a book series called The Dresden Files. Um, where they use ley lines and a place where some ley lines meet. There's a an island that's super powerful when it comes to magic out on like Lake Michigan. And, you know, this game is built on the idea of tropes. It is Monster of the Week because it is supposed to feel like an episodic TV show. It is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's Charmed, supernatural. supernatural. It's ch- yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And so, you know, this is definitely a game where, oh, I like this idea. I'm going to take it and kind of twist it because people will be familiar with it. And it, it'll be a little bit different. Um, but it'll still lean into that idea of tropes and ideas that people are kind of familiar with. One of the things that got a little complicated for me in listening to it, and I again, I'm sure it's just because my brain isn't trained in thinking of an RPG worlds, um, was the layout of the candles and how those kind of mirrored in levels of the building. Um, I had a hard time thinking of how that would be sketched out. Can you talk a little bit more about the significance of that? Um, so yeah, the importance of that is... The idea that, you know, on a spell, on a summoning circle and whatever, that there are points of power to it and that each one is representative of an element. So I have, and I don't think that they've discovered all of it yet, but each of those candles is representative of something. And so one of them, the candle, is connected to the power source. It's connected to the ley line. So it is the candle that that part of the circle is what drains the ley line. And, you know, this candle is connected to the creature that you're trying to drain from. And this candle is connected to the ability to transfer everything that happens in the circle to another candle of that same makeup in a different circle. So each of the candles has a specific purpose in what it does in this in this ceremony. And so I, I, I'm not sure if I should go through them because I can't remember if they've discovered them all. I don't want to spoil anything. Oh, okay. Anything. Yeah, I don't want too many spoilers. Um, but. But, uh, but yeah, so they are significant. And something that was brought up, they were kind of looking at them like, oh, they just look like candles. And they never really took the time to investigate them. But just because the candles all look the same or they might just be a different color doesn't necessarily mean that they're made of the same material or that they have the same components mixed into them. I see, yeah. So like these candles were specially made. So it's so not there might the- be additional ingredients inside of it that help make it magic or help connect it. The thing that they do know is that, you know, this circle, that there's three of them and that the pattern of the candles matched at each one. And so it is a very specific layout. And if they can figure out that, oh, each of these circles does the same thing, well, why? Okay, so we figured out that these two connect to this, this connects to this. So what does this connect to? Oh, we figured out this what this connects to, and it gives us the next piece of the story because say that, oh, this candle transfers this to the center point. And so all three of these circles are transferring something to a middle point. So it's not just their proximity, but it's also what they're composed of. And it's their order in the circle. Now, when I was listening to this, I was picturing it like a Venn diagram, but now I don't think that it is a Venn diagram. That's correct. It is not. Yeah. Um, It is. Think of it more like a triangle and there's a circle at each point and then there's something in the middle as well. Mm -hmm. And they pop up again. Yes. In Hawaii. Yep. Right. So so these are, this is going to be an ongoing theme that we see then. Correct. They essentially are seeing in Hawaii a microcosm of the macrocosm. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, in Hawaii, that room got kind of destroyed in the investigation. Early at the beginning of this episode, you talked about the idea of like, oh, there's things that they may just have missed completely because things were destroyed or a role went badly. And that's a perfect example that that room could have told them exactly what was happening in Indianapolis, but half of it got destroyed due to bad investigation. Under the bus. You just threw the guys I, under know, the bus. I, the dice threw them under the bus. <laughs> uh, and because I think they're aware of that. They're like, oh, well, we could have figured this out. But oh, because look, this is kind of the same. And But really, what was happening in Hawaii could show them what was happening in Indianapolis if they had been able to collect all that data. Another interesting overlap, or I guess reappearance, would be the wood sprite that was 
trapped by the bat, the soul bat, mm-hmm. that then reappeared five story arcs later. Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, Rev gives them this introduction of a wood sprite being a collection of positive energy that's connected to nature. I think he says it's condensed into physical form or something yeah. like that. He says a lot of things. He, he talks a lot. Not all of them are probably always true. He's a bit of a know-it-all. <laughs> pretentious bastard um so wood sprite is a pretty generic term so is there a specific kind that you have in mind i'm always interested in how wood sprites are wood sprites and fairies and nymphs are kind of portrayed especially in pop culture because there's this generic term that's almost always a a tutelary character that's specifically connected to nature Far back, there's a deity called Leshy. This is a character that's in Slavic and Russian mythology, and there are all kinds of iterations of this deity. And I will not try and butcher the other Slavic pronunciation, so I'm just going to stick with Leshy. Okay. Um, but it's a deity that guards the forest, and it's interesting to me as this being one of the earliest renditions of a wood sprite because it's a very masculine being. It's um, it's interesting that in pop culture we've really feminized the idea of wood sprites and fairies and, and that kind of thing. Um, but Leshy as a deity oversees the forest and wood, the woods and nature and hunting and has this very masculine energy and is traveling with wolves and bears. And so that kind of uh, misconfiguration to me is something that I've noticed a lot in pop culturally, especially considering how this creature functions when she reappears later. It, she seems very feminine too. And mm. all the, the wood sprites in Ilrond actually, actually appear more feminized to yeah. me. So I just didn't know if there was a connection. You know, in the moment, the creation of that character was, again, off of a botched role. You yeah. know, somebody made a weird role. Okay, they got to find something here. And so I kind of went through my mental Rolodex of what I know about Indianapolis um, when it comes to the game specifically. And so I was like, okay, well, I know that this is here. And so it had started out as that there was a group of wood sprites in this little park. Um, But then as things kind of went on, it evolved into, oh, no, I think that this person has come from this other place. And because of the magic that's going on, it created a tear. And, you know, that's not necessarily something that I, I think that they have pieced together yet. But something that happened here and there at the same time is what made it. So she was able to get here. It's the same way that they're able to get back. Um, You know, it was not happenstance that she appears there. Um, It is connected to the events that they're examining that night. And so for me, they are not necessarily physically male or female. I very much picture them as actually like more humanized version of Ents, that they are bark skinned and they are the hair or the beard is moss or vines or whatever. Um, But it is, you know, it's interesting that you say that because obviously I created a matriarchy with that. You know, it is and it is a child queen. Yeah. Really kind of inspired by the little girl from Game of Thrones, Lady Mormont, the little, the 10 year old girl yes, who's a real the badass. badass. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so then just surrounding herself with powerful people, you know, then decided what their culture was and what was important to them and what they did, what their function is. And then just started kind of creating the structure of the society and of the royal court based off of that. It's interesting that you make the connection back to the, the Tolkien because when you look at drawings or early sketches of this deity Leshy, it's very much that huge masculine humanoid looking Mm. character that's made of tree bark kind of but but these characters in our story are a a much smaller version they're not the size they're not the scale of the ints correct but they're the same kind of configuration do you know um this is kind of off topic but is Leshy? The model for Liam Neeson's character in A Monster Calls, where he is the giant tree creature, the little kid who's dealing with the trauma of his mom's death. Oh, wow. I, I haven't seen that film. I couldn't okay. answer. Yeah, yeah he, he's dealing with the trauma of his mom's death, and he's so angry and mad, and he keeps summoning this creature, and it's uh, it's a giant, it's an ent, essentially, who helps smash things and break stuff and scream when he's mad, and, but very masculine tree character. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, I have one more question. Um, I don't know if you can answer this or not, mm-hmm. but I'm really curious to the figure who was on the roof. There, you know, there are all these references in pop culture and mythology of the Invisible Man and oh. the, you know, the, the 
invisibility does he have invisibility cloak you know these kinds right. of things that the power that can't be seen and obviously jake interacts with that yeah um at one point on the roof so what i feel like i'm missing something there. you are you are and that's probably something we'll have to talk about on a future episode of investigate the history um yeah that figure has not returned yet, but it will. You know, okay. it was not there arbitrarily. There was not an invisible person with a sniper rifle on the <laughs> building for no reason. That piece of the story, uh, I assume, will will come up again okay. uh, relatively soon. Okay, and there are several things that are going to come up again. So as we wrap this up, you know, this idea of, of werewolves and vampires and the candles and the pattern and the ley lines, that's all going to pop up again in our next story arc. Yep. So... When we uh, meet again next month. When we two. When, well, I mean, we could say three. Harvey is here. It, it's it's true. It's true. Or maybe we're leaving a spot open for the devil. Oh, yep. As we should. He might be a Patreon <laughs> subscriber. So. It's just. We'll likely. always leave the third mic open for the devil. <laughs> That's creepy, but good. I like that. Um, and I can get behind it. So um, I get in our next episode, then we will be jumping into more of these overlaps and adding some uh Polynesian mythology as yeah. we make our way to Hawaii. See where the story takes us after that. All right. All right. Thanks so much to all of you for listening to the very first episode of Investigate the History. And I'm looking forward to moving on with all of you to our next adventure in Hawaii. Investigate the History, hosted by Carolyn Conover, is a Crit Show Studios production, edited and produced by Brandon Wentz, with music by Jake Purley. Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Welcome to Icewind Dale. It is not a good day in Icewind Dale. Aurel, the Frost Maiden, a god, the divine embodiment of winter's fury, has withdrawn to this cold corner of the world, plunging it into endless night. You repeat this uh, harbinger of winter's name again one more time. Aurel. 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 This is I Seduce the Dragon. Gentry, I'm so sorry I'm about to fight some kids. God damn it. It's a new D&D podcast. Your hands are tied behind your back. Okay, what's that face? <laughs> Am I into it? <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's a story about Tori. He is the worst person you know. Gentry. And none of my friends believe me. Not at all. You're circus folk. Why would we believe you? Erastus. Erastus likes to party and moisturize. <laughs> <laughs> and Martha. I have to eat off of porcelain like one of you people. You people? Uh, what a hardship for you. It's a story about friendship. Aren't you supposed to be a god? Demi-god, remember? Oh, demi-god. It's like running a half marathon. It's like not that impressive. <laughs> it's still a very long run. And standing up for what's right. And this is, just to be clear, still our problem. I'm going to go hide under something. Look for I Seduce the Dragon. Oh, he big. Oh, he's so big. <laughs> wow, he's so big. I've never seen someone take up four squares on <laughs> Roll20. <laughs> Wherever you get your podcasts.